that animal that we saw was intelligent enough to work out that the best way to get away from us was a couple of hundred meters away was a hedge and he was going over it. I just froze. <laughs> didn't want to move because I didn't want it coming towards me or anything, something like that. You think, where the hell has that come from? Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Hello and welcome. This is Big Cat Conversations, episode 91, and we're releasing this one in early February 2023. After several false alarms, we are, at last, catching up with the go-to man in Scotland for big cats, Paul MacDonald. Paul is a good friend of the show, and he's featured on it previously, way back in episode 16, and again in episode 61. And we spoke to one of his fellow investigators, David McEwen, in episode 67. In this edition, we're going to hear about some highlights of big cat incidents in Scotland since we spoke with David McEwen a year ago in that episode. So, Paul, great to have you back and thanks for being with us. Thanks very much, Rick. It's a pleasure to be back. Splendid, Paul. And I know we've got all kinds of things and incidents to catch up on, but we do want to start with a highlight of a sighting report, if you could relay one to us at the start. And I know we've got one from a fishing contact near the end that we're going to have later on. But could we start with a sightings report that you've heard amongst your work in the past year, please? Yep, sure. There's certainly been quite a bit of activity all around most areas of Scotland this year. We're always quite interested and excited to hear about lynx sightings. Lynx sightings, due to the nature, the distinctive characteristics of the cat, tend to be quite detailed reports. The short tails, you know, pointy ears, the distinctive gait uh, that lynx have and, and the coloration as well, all seems to come across quite well in reports. And we did have one 11 months ago now in the borders not too far from where myself and David McEwen are based. So we're quite excited to follow up on that one. It was quite a decent report that also came with an image as well. Okay, and this was the one on a forest track, wasn't it? And didn't it actually come up towards the people? Weren't they a little bit wary at the start? Can you tell us about the detail of what happened? Yeah, so a local fellow was out walking his dog and it was a a, a wide enough forest path, but certainly big enough for, for a vehicle to pass. There's a a long sweeping right hand bend ahead of them with forestry either side. And as he's approaching that bend with his dog, he describes this lynx coming round the corner. And um, I think when he first saw it, he was aware what he was seeing, but was, you know, still trying to process it in his own mind. His dog took the fear, you know, had a very distinctive and immediate response to it. And he said that was quite unusual for his dog as well. And then the lynx had advanced slightly towards them before it saw them and stopped. And then he saw it turn sideways and bound off into the forest. So he got a, not just a front view, but a full side view and movement with it as well. And he, and he had time enough just to get his camera out and take one shot for us. Is that available? Has it been on Facebook in Scotland? And can we use it for this edition? It has, yep, the, the witness has given his permission for it to be shared, so I'm sure we can forward that on for the podcast as well. Great. If it's the one that I think it is, I think it's recognisable as a link, so I think it's in the middle distance, and unfortunately there's only one. Sometimes if you see two or three, you can see a bit of movement and the angles change and everything, and this is sort of one more front on, and you can see how sleek it looks. But there's a little bit of uh, room for people to say, oh, I'm not sure, and dodge and evade the issue if they want to play it down and pretend it's something else or say it's too blurry. It's one of those, isn't it, do you think? Yeah, there obviously was some distance between them when when the shot was taken, so it isn't a 10 out of 10 shot, I can say that. But when you zoom in on it, and you know enhance it slightly it does help bring out a little bit more detail some of the really distinctive detail you can see is the white chin if you like that that links tend to have as well as the, sort of, uh, the whites of eyebrows those distinctive details on the facial features do stand out so it's, it's another good little pointer uh, as well as 
his own testimony, of course. He saw it face on, he saw it side on, and we've got the reaction of his dog, which was unusual for his dog as well at the time, which kind of cowered between his legs, I believe. Have you had anything else from there, Paul, before or after? Well, yep, usually the first thing we do when we get a sighting report in is we bring up the mapping and we see what other you know, previously known local activity there's been. And yes, there was a historic link sighting there. Can't remember the year of it, but it was perhaps, uh, I want to say about 15, 20 years ago. So not too recent, but there was links report in that immediate area, you could say, as well as, and Mike, onto this later, a possible association with intentional releases, an origin story. But good on him for finding you and wanting to share that what it's all about isn't it yep yep great okay well we'll have another sightings report later on you just mentioned mapping there and i think you've made in the past 12 months i mean more significant progress on mapping reports but also looking at old sources of data for mapping and comparing those with your current sources so that must have been intriguing to do that and so can you tell us um, how you got that information of the old material and how you've compared it with a new yeah, well, the Scottish Big Cats Trust was around in the 1990s, up to, I believe, about 2005. And they had already compiled around 600 sighting reports all throughout Scotland. These were not mapped reports. And so we could only use the ones that were that had an adequate enough location descriptor along with the details of the sighting. And of course, we need enough information on a good sighting report to map in the first place. We've always taken the approach that if there's just not enough information, if there's any doubt in the mind of the witness that what they saw could have possibly been a dog, even if they say I'm 80 or 90% sure, to us that's not good enough. You know, we're only looking to map the reports where it's it's pretty clear, it's pretty evident that what they're seeing is feline and big enough and sometimes displaying that in its behaviour in front of them. The Scottish Big Cats Trust, looking at their material, and I used to look at it when I first got into the subject, I think they just petered out by the time I got into the subject. But they were a swatty bunch, weren't they? They were very much on the case and very well coordinated and seemed to be a very smart, sharp setup at the time. Yes, they were very credible researchers as well. It's been good to be, be in touch with George Redpath, who was one of their members, and uh, he was a policeman at the time. He was the go-to officer for reports, certainly in the sort of Fife and Aberdeenshire areas. And I believe he was travelling a bit further field as well for reports. And uh, so he gathered a lot of information at the time. Been up to visit George and he, he's brought out his files and showed us a lot of fascinating photographs and all sorts. So it's good to make the connection across time with the research that's gone on in Scotland. And it's definitely helped add quite significantly to the, the mapping as well. Yes, and George himself had a couple of sightings and kept in touch with the subject even in his retirement because I think constabulary Scottish police forces used to still ask him to follow up cases, didn't they? Because they knew he was somebody they could trust who knew a bit about the subject. Yep, and George is, uh, you know, he's not without experience in that field as well. He's, He's seen Big Cat several times himself. In fact, where he stays turned out to be a bit of a hot spot there. There seemed to be quite a bit of activity around him, but he's been fortunate enough to see that cat a few times over the decades as well. Comparing the previous data on on credible sightings you had with your last few years of your own material that you and colleagues have collected, what was the lineup like? Did you see similar trends or different trends, or did you fill in more parts of areas that you didn't have material for? You know, What, what was that all like? One thing is that the the mapping concentrations, in a way, reflect the population map of Scotland also. Yeah, because you can't have sightings without people. Exactly. Where there are more eyes, you know, there's more of a chance of things being seen. We certainly know that there is a tendency for certain big cat types to, to range as far as urban periphery. And of course, there's many more eyes in urban periphery than any rural and remote location. And just from a, you know, a glance at the map, you can also see that a lot of the pinpoints follow the road network because there's a, a significant amount of the sightings that are happening when the cats are breaking cover, crossing clear roads. And 
often vehicles often have to slam on the brakes or are pretty close quarters to cats crossing the road as well. So, you know, that's a pattern we can certainly see significant amount of sightings happening from vehicles, either vehicles seeing it in a field beside them or crossing the road directly in front of them and nearer the, the population centres as well, but, but obviously not in the urban areas as such. Yeah, you're just reminding me, Paul, that when we spoke to David a year ago, David McEwen, your colleague, we had this very interesting case he was describing in one of the residential areas of Edinburgh, where about three different people over a week had seen it independently and reported it, and it was in a garden and on a shed roof and that yeah. sort of thing. Did anything come of that? Because it was seen to be ongoing. You and he were, and others were waiting for the next reports in that area. Did that just fizzle out, or did anything else happen? No, at, at the time, we followed up on every single one as swiftly as we could, and we were trying to join the dots and make the connections between all the sightings and you know establish routes in and routes out that were taken. We think we got an idea around that, but nothing else came of it. We've not been made aware of any more reports in that area. In fact, we could say the past couple of months have been fairly quiet overall in terms of sighting reports. Okay, which is um, different from how it is often including this year down in um, Gloucestershire and around. I mean, it hasn't gone crazy, I would say, but we tend to be busier in the winter months than we are other times of the year with reports. We tend to think that is that they've got to be more active when they're in the colder weather and deer are more stressed and easier to snaffle, so you see more deer carcasses. Also, it's just easier to see mammals in the landscape with a lack of vegetation and lack of leaves in the, in the winter months. The lack of vegetation there you mentioned, um, we have noticed two spikes of sighting reports over the course of a year that seem to come around each time. That seems to be around the start of spring, where you get the vegetation growing suddenly and providing more cover. And where I think the, the cover suddenly starts to make itself you know, a bit more lush, then the cats are likely ranging a bit further out than they, they might normally, which could lead to more eyes on. But then they're difficult to see because of this as well. Yeah, exactly. But then the, the, the second spike we've noticed seems to be around harvest time and where you've got you know bountiful fields all around where cats have got their cover, suddenly that cover's taken away. And you know if cats are still ranging out in the same routes, then maybe they're just being seen cr crossing these open grounds a little more. But it's, it's, it's the two times of years where we're seeing the changes in the environment perhaps reflecting reasons for sightings. Yes, and I certainly concur with that one about uh, harvest time. And I think also in the through the summer when pasture is cut, you know, you, you get all kinds of scavenging activity and foxes and domestic cats and feral cats looking for rodents and mousing because of stranded rodents, you know, when the grass is cut. And so I think that you get that. People see cat, big cats doing that. And we saw Don's thermal mm -hmm. camera footage of, of a big cat mousing just like a small cat yeah. would. But I, I agree with you, when crops get cut, they're exposed because they use crops just like a leopard would shelter the sugarcane in Asia. Well, they, they're going to be doing that in cropland in Britain as well and not be yeah. seen until it's revealed. So, yeah. yeah, good stuff. What about numbers of sightings? Because you're getting a bit more profile now, are you getting more sightings overall because you're better known and your activities are leading to more trust? I think we generally have been since... There was an article, maybe I, I think a couple of years ago now, that went out that was really helpful just in you know putting ourselves out there as a point of contact. And I think since then, it's helped folk, you know, immediately after a sighting, the first place they turn to is Google to search, you know, where to report a sighting of big cats in Scotland. And yeah, just the right amount of media exposures helped establish ourselves as a point of contact and folk are getting in touch. And you often get that, by the way, of emails or private messages on Facebook. And it's easy that way to follow up and, you know, if they're local enough to go and visit and uh, find out something more about the, the location, even search for evidence if it's uh, recent enough after the sighting. So it's been helpful that way for sure. And even if they're a bit more remote, you know, we can provide a bit of advice where possible and encourage uh, witnesses to conduct a wee bit of follow up themselves. Good stuff. And, and in fact, we're going to talk about the rural shows that you did. 
in a minute, actually. So that must have been also helpful for getting trust and getting known about. But in terms of your colleagues and your network of people who work with you, uh, is that building? Have you got sort of other parts of the country covered with the people you can delegate things to? Yeah, um, we've been building up our um, Scottish Big Cat research team. We've now got 39 members, pretty much the length and breadth of Scotland. We don't have so many members up in the far northwest highlands. So if anyone's listening up there and they're interested enough in getting involved in fieldwork, we'd be more than happy to hear from you. But we do have, you could say, the hotspots historically and currently covered with a good number of, uh, of research team members. We've had quite a number of our members in Fife and in Aberdeenshire, Murrayshire, and Dumfries and Galloway, East Lothian, and West Highlands, all conducting you know field work off the back of uh, sightings. So it's, it's been quite good to see all that come together. Uh, Paul Brooks, I know, is one of your fellow investigators, and we, he's had sightings as well. We're going to hear from him in a few episodes' time. He heads up our East Lothian research team. There's been quite a bit of big black cat activity, not just recent years, but uh, spanning about four decades in that area. More about that soon with another poll. So thank you for that. And finally, on mapping, you've been hearing from a few people on stories of perhaps releases and origins of these cats. And you call that origin stories and you're mapping those. That's a very nice term that we're going to use for our words of the week. So can you explain about your origin stories mapping? I've always seen origin stories as something quite interesting because, it, you know, these are the reasons why we're seeing what we're seeing today. Origin stories invariably end up being stories about intentional releases. We know there's always been an illicit trade in exotic animals and uh, there, there perhaps always will be. And obviously when these animals get too big to handle and either logistically and or financially become too much of a burden, it's always been it's always been the easiest option for any owner to take them somewhere remote enough and release them, especially if those animals have not been perhaps legally owned in the first place, then who's going to know would be going through their mind. Of course, you know, if they're seen off enough over time, then we eventually know there's something about but where does it come from is often what witnesses will want to know these stories obviously don't get out of the time because this <laughs> just the very act of releasing is illegal itself so we're not hearing about these until you know some decades two or three decades at least after they've happened so they are historic stories of historic releases but even just knowing where these have happened when we draw up a map of the origin stories themselves and we've got I can't remember how many we've got on the map but we have origin stories relating to most areas in Scotland we could say Uh, when you cross-reference that with our national mapping it's pretty evident that you're looking at the same same hotspots. It begs the question are they believable they can't easily be verified, so you're taking somebody's word for it. And how do you verify them then in the first place, or how do you give them credibility uh, yourself? Obviously, the closer you can get to the source, the better. Now, we've had quite a few of the origin stories from individuals that have known the owners directly, and the, the owners confiding to them that, yes, that's what's happened with the cats. And, you know, giving a, an approximate area sometimes or, or more exact areas to where the releases happened. So, you know, we always try and get as close to the the origin itself. One stood out, in fact, that we got not so, we got sometime this year, which was uh, a story that, that cleared up a bit of a mystery in my head as well about sightings right up in the far north of Scotland. I couldn't quite understand how cats would have got up this far in the first place. But then a story came about as to a former US naval base that was on the coast up there. And I believe this was active. In fact, it was operational between 1962 and 1992. And they had at least one melanistic leopard as a, you know, a a trophy animal. It was known locally that they released the cat 
after the the base was was closed, and there's been a spate of sightings ever since. And and it was I think the first sighting up in that area. It was in the, certainly in the early 90s, but it wasn't long after uh, 1992, which was when the base closed down. Very interesting, because yeah, you're dead right. Caithness and Sutherland, yeah, it's um long way north. Plenty of deer there, I suppose, if you're a predator. But it does get very credible and fairly routine, mainly large black ones, but also gets puma-type sightings, doesn't it, up in uh, that part of the world? Origin of one, I mean, um, needs more than one for it to keep going, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, of course, yep, yep. And, of course, the motivation for people blabbing about this now, is it sometimes they've got a gripe with, with the person that they think did release something or is it just that it's it's seen as family or contacts of the person decades on feel more comfortable talking about it i think it's much more the latter that that time's passed enough you know over two or three decades that yeah we can maybe mention that now and obviously the proliferation of uh, big cat groups on facebook and so on are providing platforms for folk to put their stories up now so good you're getting that. It just also, I think, shows you that the puzzle with this subject is partly how come it's ongoing and they seem to be fit, healthy, confident, potentially naturalising animals. Well, the answer to that is that if there was various sources of their origins, that would strengthen the genetic base of them. So it's, it's many episodes or different episodes rather than one episode of releases and several types of founder stock, but of the same species or the same three species, it seems. So this is all uh, leading to that conclusion, isn't it? Different origins in different places at different times all builds up a more healthy, healthy stock of them. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Interestingly enough, there was origin stories about lynx very specifically in fact we've had two separate origin stories one received quite recently from Dumfries and Galloway area and another from the borders which happened uh, some time ago could we talk about the uh, the peter clark the late peter clark's discussions in the press because he was reported a sort of conservative politician or an aspiring conservative politician and landowner in 2006, was in the press, and I think he died uh, two or three years ago. But um, anyway, still in the press. We'll put a link to the report. I think it's on Wikipedia. You can see it. That he was um, saying he was going to release links, and he wanted to release uh, other large candidate animals for reintroductions. He was part of that sort of interest at that time. That was 2006, and the rewilding and reintroductions agenda was getting going well then. He was quite blatantly talking in the press about the intention to release six links. Now, I've heard other people say that he did, but I don't think there's any actual evidence of that, is there? Have you heard any evidence that he actually implemented uh, that? I Yes, I have. Okay. It appears that uh, Scottish Natural Heritage at the time were speaking up against it, saying, no, you can't or shouldn't be doing this off your own back. He was using the brand of the Wild Beasts Trust at the time. So if people Google that, they can see this discussion in the press from 2006. That's right. Well, I received a sighting from a fellow down in the borders and he gave me some more interesting information besides. And that that was that he stayed quite close to a a tower house that Peter Clark uh, used to own. He was the first fellow to tell me about Peter Clark and his programme with the Wild Beasts Trust. And he said that, yep, he could confirm that they did release, I believe it was six links in all. There was three in the borders and three in Northumberland, he said, to start to either start to establish a breeding population or boost one that might have currently been there. Well, curiously enough, just over the hill from this area, this location, We've got two historic link sightings, and one of those was the sighting earlier in 2022 that uh, spoke about just earlier there. I think he just saw himself in a, perhaps even just in a wealthy enough position to do something about it. <laughs> and, uh, I think his motivation was just to get some beasts back out there. Oh, well, thank you for clarifying that. Very interesting. And the other one, you said there were two, the Dumfries and Galloway one. What's that all about? Yeah, I received some information recently about uh, some intentional releases in Dumfries and Galloway area, including both a pair of lynx and a pair of puma. I was given the 
location details for both. And again, they both released origin stories tie in with activity of those species in those areas. So it does tend to support the idea. More interestingly, I was informed that the Lynx releases were in a particular quite large forest area. Now, when I brought the mapping up and looked around that forest area, literally there was a circle of sightings around it, and several of those were Lynx. But they seemed to predate the date that was given for the Lynx release origin story. So when I questioned that, I was informed that they knowingly released them in an area where they knew there was an established population of lynx already, which seemed to tie in with the timeline and the the location of sightings. For listeners who, and overseas listeners who don't know the geography of Scotland, Dumfries and Galloway is the southwest region, isn't it? Exactly. Dumfries and Galloway has a massive forestry network, covers a good proportion of it. In my early days on this topic, I was once phoned by one of the local newspaper editors in Dumfries and Galloway. I can't remember whether he quoted me in the story at the time, but he just wanted my view about a local sighting that had been reported to his newspaper. We got chatting off the record, as it were. He basically said, and I've had this from other local journalists as well, that isn't it a weird subject, but he did feel, as a journalist, listening to people that these people were credible, that, that most of these witnesses you hear about in local papers, in his view, as a journalist, hearing people's vibes and um, conviction, that he just felt, you know, a lot of people didn't want to say this. It, you know, They felt quite embarrassed about it, but he thought there was really something in it as an editor of a local newspaper in his patch. And it's always been as good as anywhere else, hasn't it, Dumfries and Galloway, for Big Cat Reports? Yes, yeah, it's, a, it's an ideal environment. With things predominantly being forest uh, cats, and it's mostly a forest area, so absolutely spot on. Yes, okay. Now, on to uh, rural shows, and I've been doing rural shows off and on for uh, many years, and I find it a very good way to get known and get trusted and get contacts for information and to put trail cameras out and uh, meet landowners and meet all kinds of people. And you started doing that with David and um, colleagues last year, and you've done three, is it? And tell us where you went and how you got on. Predominantly, the, the first reason we wanted to do this was get ourselves out there as a point of contact. The first we did was the one of the largest shows, the Scottish Game Fair, which is held at Schoon Palace. And uh, this was an ideal venue it's teeming with gamekeepers, uh, with farmers, with landowners, and that's exactly the type of people we're looking to make contact with. They would know what's on their land, and we were not disappointed with the amount of stories that came back to us there. Quite surprised, in fact, by the amount of gamekeepers in particular that came up to us, and were all for big cats, had seen them themselves and could tell us all about them. That was really quite a positive event. We were there for three days and every single day, I could say we had little rest. The stand was well attended. We have big cat skulls, resin cast of leopard and puma and lynx. We, of course, had our, our own mascot, Pedro, which is uh, it's a full original tiger skeleton, which we were gifted from George Redpath. And so Pedro was there uh, with us as well. And uh, of course, a lot of kids asking questions and quite fascinated and a lot of adults as well. And you find some of which had never heard about the subject, knew nothing about it, which gives you a chance to engage and, and provide a bit of education. You could always tell, I think, when somebody does have a story or something to say, because, you know, they'll hang back and they'll wait. You just get the sense that they've maybe seen something or have got something to share. So we just had a great time in the three days at Spoon Palace. We'd look forward to seeing a photo of Pedro with you and David. We'll put that on the website for people who haven't seen that, because I know Pedro's an awesome feature to make people stop and stare and ask questions. I use the sort of replica big mountain lion and black leopard type cuddly toys. They're good props and they certainly get people stopping and and engaging. But Pedro's hard to beat. So we'll see a photo of of him on the website. And I know what you mean about you can just sort of tell when somebody's got something to say that's quite significant. You just pick up the vibes. They're about to unleash something of, of significance. And I've heard, I don't know whether you had it. Occasionally, I've had people that are clearly there to spill the beans or say something significant. And because you're held up talking to other people on other stuff... Mm -hmm. Um, 
th- these other people behind who you really want to sort of prioritise, they just move on and you think, oh, it is frustrating because you sometimes you miss things. Every time, you know, somebody came up and said, well, have I got a story for you? You know, we were all ears and uh, it was just a great, great experience. We did make the mistake, though, <laughs> on our first event at not taking contact details for witnesses that came forward. We would hand out our cards with our numbers and, and the Facebook details and email address and ask them to get in touch. But actually, out of dozens that came up and shared amazing stories with us, we only had a few, barely a handful, in fact, out of all that, that, that actually got in touch after. So we realised our mistake. We learned the hard way off of Schoon Palace, let's say, as to how to engage and how to follow up with sightings that way, with reports that come in. Get their information and, and their numbers or emails while you've, you've got them. I did the same. You know, it took me a couple of events before I thought, yeah, I'm not getting these promises fulfilled. But I think it's because for two reasons. I think people have busy lives and it's not a priority when they get back home, even mm-hmm. though it felt like it at the time. But also, I think a lot of the time people just feel that one confession, if you like, and testimony is a sort of bit of closure for them. And they've said it to the right person in the right situation. And for them, yeah. that's often enough. And we have it even on trying to get podcast guests. You know, quite a lot of people that would be great podcast guests got very interesting stories to tell. They're not so interested because they've unburdened it somewhere on Facebook or with me or they just fall away then because it's not a priority for them. Yes, I will say out of the few that, that did follow up, we were glad for one in particular that actually led to us making a trip to the West Highlands to study one of the best pieces of evidence, hard evidence we've ever seen. An image of a print and a cast of that same print that were taken in the West Highlands in a a known area of activity. It's a pretty good print. It all points towards being leopard and being a large male leopard at that too. The size of the print, around the five inch mark, in fact, a sizable body overall. We got the full information from the witnesses of that, the folk that took the print. It was a bit of a chasing game from the initial contact to follow up and actually find the person that had seen the cat and taken the print. But we got there in the end, and that's remarkable. They're actually looking to get a 3D print done of that cast so that it's something we can show and have as part of our stand for events for this year as well. Out of the dozens that spoke to us, to have one piece of evidence like that off the back of one story was quite remarkable. Just shows you the worth of doing these events, doesn't it? It's not necessarily quantity of feedback, it's quality and just getting a few uh, good leads. And for gamekeepers, you know, you might have got a bit of um, shiftiness and wariness because people tend to sort of stick to their own camps and you're not coming from that camp. But you were well received there then, Paul. Yes, yeah, we were quite impressed actually by the amount of gamekeepers that came up and, and quite happily shared their stories. And we, we, we would ask them as well about their attitudes towards big cats because we've always been aware we get you know one of a few attitudes from gamekeepers and, and, and it's either they're for the cats and they know about them and they're, they're for conservation as well or they, they want to shoot them or they don't believe them at all. They've not had any experience, any sightings in their area, perhaps, and they just don't believe they're out there. So we tend to get one of those three. I'm exactly the same, Paul. That's exactly how I find it as well. Let's go on to the next one, and you can tell us about what you're doing next year. So People's Show was next, was it? Yes, yes. We did the People's Show, which for us was a relatively local one. It's more of an agricultural-type show. We almost still bear the scars of that event. It was one of the hottest days of the year. You know, these really scorchers that we had this year. Uh, well, we're back and forward to the ice cream stands constantly. It's South Scotland, isn't it? I mean, it's Borders region, isn't it? It's Borders, yes, yes, yep. And we've been aware of quite a number of sightings around that area of the Borders over the years. We did have quite a few locals come up with their stories, some of which we'd actually heard before or heard very similar in the area. So it was good to tie in with, you know, a known activity that we had. And later in the year, in August, we were at the Glenfinnan Games, which is in the West Highlands. And we thought that would give us a good opportunity to get some Lacaber area sightings, which is, uh, is where I'm from originally. So for me, that was it was going back home. And again, we were quite chuffed to get a good number 
of folk up and some locals, one of which gave us a story of one being shot a few decades ago, but he, he described it. He saw it, I think, at the time. I think it was his father that shot it, but it was buried not long after because he, he thought he might get into trouble. But he described it as being about four or five foot long in the body, jet black, you know, long tail, all the kind of pointers towards a likely melanistic leopard. He confirmed he wouldn't now know exactly where it was buried. And we didn't get the impression he was leading us on. He was quite genuine about it. But just very interesting to hear of a, a carcass going into the ground locally there. I've been to the Glenfinnan Games. It is, it's straight out of a film set, that one. It's like a little mini local Highland Games. It's right by the um, really iconic railway viaduct that's in the Harry Potter film. Is that right? Have I got the got it all right? Exactly right. It's the Glenfinnan Viaduct, and that's exactly where I had my first sighting, Rick. Which people can hear about on episode sixteen if they haven't, which is a memorable, <laughs> yeah, memorable part of one of our earlier shows. Yeah. Okay, and you hail from those parts, so that must have been nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And you're doing more rural shows next year, I hope, on the back of all this. Yep, I think we're planning to do at least the same shows again. And we've got a mind to cast our eyes up north a little, uh, up to Aberdeenshire, Murrayshire, which historically has been one where there's at least a few hotspots around there. So we're, we're going to try and find what we think would be the most productive show for us to do up there as well. Yeah, yeah. I tend to find the more sort of local ones are often very productive. Sometimes they could be too big and corporate, some of these rural shows. It's all worth doing. It's all good public engagement. And people, I think, will be surprised how curious people are, how fascinated and how mm. how people appreciate it as well. So many people say, good on you for standing up for this subject, which is lovely, heartening feedback. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see the like say, the, the range of attitudes towards it, meeting folk directly like that. Right, now, on to a highlight of last year, which was a carcass on the side of a road by the A9 in Perth last summer. Can you tell us what happened then, Paul? Yeah, um, got uh, initially a, a small piece of footage and an image of carcass of a large black cat lying by the roadside. Of course, the first thing, you know, your mind turns to is what scale are we looking at here? The fellow is in the video saying, this thing's huge. He says, the legs are about um, as thick as my wrist. You know, he's saying it's about a metre long. From this, it was then a matter of figuring out if we could get some, some evidence from it in any way and also figure out exactly where the location was, you know, to, to travel there and for anything that might have been left as it did appear to be hit by a vehicle in the face or the head area that was quite evident it was a black one people can see on the website if we, if we get permission yeah. for the photo and i think what struck me was that it's got a gingery brownie hue to it so people who want to say oh it could be possibly a melanistic leopard it's got that but it's got a, a shorter yeah. tail than you'd expect if it was a, a melanistic leopard it's got round enough ears and it's it, it's got thick enough legs it's, it's so difficult to know exactly what it is but Yep. The standout feature for me was the more sort of winter coat type, longer fur on it mm. that, than you'd expect. But maybe that's, you know, some of them do have that in more parts of Scotland and higher up altitudes of Britain. But that was a standout feature of this one, I thought. Yeah, yeah, it, it was. And our minds first turned towards the likelihood of it being a wildcat hybrid, a Kellis type cat. We still know so little about them. And, and this is why it's, it's important even if it was that, to get some information from it and confirm that in some way. Yeah, but it was nowhere near Kellis Estate, Kellis area, was it? Yes, that's true. Yep. Kellis has been a, a general term given for wildcat hybrid. The assertion of the tail being broken, that was the one puzzling factor, wasn't it? That shorter tail than you'd imagined. Looking at it against the curbstones and knowing the length of the curbstones, it seems that the assertion that it was around a metre or more in the body length, head to rump, does seem correct, in which case it is the scale of a cat that could kill a deer. It is one of our big cats that we're interested in. Yes, it was scalable from the curbstones there. 
and it yeah, seemed to be about that size. So definitely a cat of interest for us. But it was whisked away, wasn't it? Taken away by contractors who removed debris from trunk roads in Scotland right in front of him as he as he was looking at it. Yeah, we made some efforts, in fact, to try and determine where the carcass had gone, which included getting in touch with all the different highway contractors that we could find that were associated with work on the A9 at the time. And everything drew a blank. There was certainly, if it was picked up by the main contractors there, it certainly didn't appear in official records in any sense anyway. Of course, you never know whether that's just communication issues internally or whether they're evading it because it was of significance and they took it somewhere to be um, looked at that we'll never find out the conclusions of or whether it just got put in the incinerator like most other things like that. You know, somebody just felt, well, you know, it's it's my job to put all these things in the incinerator and this one's going in there too. So, ah, oh, so frustrating. It seemed to go from mystery cat to missing cat and back to mystery cat again. <laughs> the guy who found it, he was in his mate's car, wasn't he? And, and his mate stopped and let him get out and film it. So good on him for doing that. But uh, another yep. frustrating one. At least there's a photo. Yep. Okay. Looking all back on your work this year then, these more sightings, more mapping, the rural shows and more investigators helping you, is there a standout advancement, point of advancement or learning point that you made? What was the progress in 2022 for you, do you think? I think in terms of our our group overall, in terms of how we're working, was, was certainly establishing more of a network of the research team allowing us off the back of a, a fresh sighting pretty much anywhere in Scotland to arrange and contact a local research team and have them meet with witnesses and carry out field work as soon as possible after a sighting. I think that's been one of our advancements this year. We've had folk out in the field pretty shortly after sightings. That's been helpful and that's something that we'll still be working with going ahead this year and down the line. That's so good, Paul. That, that's so excellent you're all in it together and you're following the same sort of protocols and procedures and you'll swap notes and, and learn together. Then you, you're linked up with the Scotland Big Cat Sightings Facebook group on that as well, are you? The Big Cat Sightings in Scotland Facebook group, that's our main online platform. We don't have a, a website or such for a group. I have enough other things to juggle in life, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Quite happy just, just with the Facebook group. Well done, yeah. Good stuff. So we said we're going to have another sighting report, and I gather this is quite a significant, interesting one from a fisherman. So could you tell us about that, please? Yep. Um, and in fact, I, I give you two for the price of one here, Rick. There's another sighting from a witness who came up to us at Schoon Palace that I could talk about first, because this is also the link with the, the fisherman one, is they're both very close sightings. So the one that came in from Schoon Palace was somebody that said they were driving along with their wife and both husband and wife came up to the stand to tell us the same story. This was in the Fife area and driving along a small back road, they round a corner to see a puma leap fully over a wall in front of them and then fully up onto a wall beside them just after the car reaches it. And it looks down at them and snarls. And he made the vocalisation of the puma noise as it's looking down at them as they're slowly driving under it and then quickly accelerating away. The way he described it as well in detail, you know, he, he was almost shaking again, telling the story. It was so close and so vivid. And he had the vocalisation, you know, of it being so close to the car. And you could tell that his wife was, was, you know, remembering it just as vividly as he was in that description as well. I think it was maybe about 15 years ago now. Not terribly recently, but a very vivid close encounter. Very good, yeah. So there's a linking one that was close by as well. Yes, so it's the other close encounter here was only earlier this year. I had the witness contact me directly, and this was not long after it had happened. He had gone up to the Highlands for a fishing trip, set up his tent beside the loch, and he had a lovely day's fishing, and at uh, dusk was getting ready to get in the tent, and at one point turned around and realised there's a significantly large black cat and two cubs approaching him quite closely. 
he's by himself. He's not quite sure what to do. So he gets in the tent. Obviously, it's his only cover that he has. Now, apparently, the the main door to his tent, the zip wasn't working right. So he couldn't zip that up, but he's just zipped up the midgy net. And so he sat there as the large cat came over and sat down. And he, he was quite adamant about this. And he says it was no more than four feet away sitting down. And the two cubs came over, sat down right beside it. And he didn't quite know what to do. The light's fading. He's there with nothing more than a midgy net between himself and a, a sizable large black cat and two cubs. He did have a phone with him. He phoned a friend who was involved in uh, professionally in wildlife and, you know, uh, said, what do I do? <laughs> it's it sat here and it's not going away. And it was sat there no more than four feet from him for about 30 minutes, for about half an hour. He said he could hear it breathing. He could smell the breath. He was that close, but he didn't know what to do. And what, what do you do in that situation? Well, he had his phone, but he said he didn't want to take a picture because the, the light was too low for normal conditions anyway. And that he didn't want to use the flash because he had no idea what reaction it might have off the back of that. And the one thing he was very glad of, though, was his Jack Russell dog was asleep in the tent beside him. And he said, had it been awake and had it gone for one of the cubs, he says, God knows where that would have led. But he said it was there for 30 minutes until eventually it moved off with the cubs. This was a, a an army veteran who, you know, had, had seen operations and such. And he, he says, I've seen some hairy stuff, but this really shook me. You know, and I think it was perhaps as much the fact he was there by himself and had, you know, no other recourse, no route out <laughs> to look to. He's stuck in a tent with a big cat that close to him. I've heard other military people, ex-military people, have sightings and close encounters. And one thing they say is that they're not normally phased by anything, but they found this unnerving and scary, the big cat encounter. And it's something that they're not trained for. Uh, so they're, you know, they're really flummoxed. That's right. I'll tell you what I would have done, Paul. I mean, it's, it's so easy to say in hindsight. I would have had my mobile phone, my smartphone on video mode, just record any noises. Yes, yes. In case that, you know, there was calling and vocalisations. But of course, you know, that's because we're anoraks and we think about that sort of thing. But easy to say now. But what a brilliant encounter. Yeah. I did ask him about that. Was there any vocalisations? He said nothing. He said, no, it didn't make a single noise the whole time. I suppose because the cubs were so close, it didn't need to call them. Yep. Well, I, I, did, I did ask him about follow up. I said, what happened the next morning? Well, he'd seen the direction it had gone off. And he followed that and he took a couple of photographs of prints. Now, these are pretty good print photos, I would say. And one has scaling in it with his foot right beside it. I says, what size boot are you? He says, size nine. It's great, you know, or, or size nine and a half, I think he said, which I am myself. So I measured my own boot, the same, similar type hiking boot, um, which is about a foot long. And there you've got scaling for the print. And the print measures out about, uh, I believe that came out about, about three and a half inches in diameter. And that corresponds with the scale of cat he was talking about because he estimated it to be about his waist height sitting down. Have you had any other reports from there? Obviously, this is close to the Pumo you had years ago, but have you had other black ones around that area as well? Yes, I actually went on a, a bit of a jaunt along there to speak to the local bailiff because the, the local bailiff came along to speak to him the next morning and he, he you know he rather stutteringly told his story. Yes, the guy who checks the fishing permits. Right, yep. The bailiff then tells him some stories and the bailiff is familiar with big cat activity in the area. So I then had to had to go and search for the bailiff. I met with him directly. And uh, we had a great conversation and he showed me a couple of pictures of a black cat that visited him on a few occasions. Now, this doesn't appear to be the same type of cat, I think, but does appear to be a couple of pictures. I think some of the clearest pictures in the wild 
of a Kellis cat, of a hybrid Scottish wild cat and domestic or feral cat, um, which was pure black and had the characteristic bushy, blunted end tail of the Scottish wild cat, similar squat type head, angry type face. So it had all the characteristics, but was jet black. But he also knew about large brown cats in the area, as well as lynx. And he was quite clear about that. He said lynx have been seen and heard several times. And I then visited a local hotelier who confirmed he'd seen a lynx in the garden once. And someone that was staying there with him one day had heard them vocalising in the local forest too. So there does seem to be not just large black cat, but other lynx and other cat activity around the area too. I think water bailiffs would be prone to that information and out and about at waterside situations. So they're going to have a good chance of getting information or seeing one themselves. So the good source of um, information, perhaps. Yeah, I had a one from a fisherman in the summer in um, South Yorkshire. Fairly similar, only it was a puma type one. He phoned me the first time and he had, had photos actually of the, the eyes. He was resting in his um, shelter, his, his bivvy, and looked through the gap before he was going to come out in the evening to do some fishing. And he just said uh, this one, he didn't know the colour because it was backlit and it was too dark really to tell. He just said it was a dark cat, could have been black or another colour. And he just saw the eyes very clearly and he got a photo of the, of the eyes and you can't really make out the, the outline fully, but it's very credible had sort of mixed emotions he was excited and scared and so he he was there for a week and carried on fishing and then three evenings later he phoned me five minutes after the event saying that he'd just been he'd been sort of drowsy just resting ready to go evening fishing it's a bit lighter when uh, a large cat went past and, and he saw it through the gap of his fishing tent fishing shelter and he saw it was a tan colored one so he assumed it was it was what he'd seen previously, and he said uh, just seconds after a little one followed, and he described the sort of more mixed coloration and the blotchiness of the markings on it. I said, "Well, it seems that you've just described a mountain lion kit, puma kit." Yes. And while we were on the phone, he googled did a web search on that and he was you know exclaimed very excited he said yeah that's it you know i'm just looking at mountain lion kit and he said that is exactly what i've just seen he wasn't really able to follow it up he said he did speak to the owner of the of the establishment the fishing lake they didn't believe him he didn't have any trail cameras he didn't have any means of getting any trail cameras there because uh, they, they couldn't have a delivery person. And I sort of lost contact with him. So I don't know how he's following that up. Uh, fairly similar in some ways to yours. but And, and whether for, there were further sightings at that location. Yes, amazing. Yeah, good stuff. Okay, now we've got one more thing, and that is your thoughts about potential event this year relating to insurance issues that may trigger some releases of exotic pets and that could include cats amongst the array of pets that this could provoke could you tell us about what you picked up please yeah um well a story broke only a few days ago of a few snakes uh, boa constrictors found dead near a scottish loch now uh, obviously they're they're not native they were found in a next to bags of rubbish at a fly tipping spot and uh, said they were lying close together. So it appears they've been intentionally dumped there. It's possible we might be seeing just the start of some fallout here from an issue to do with the Dangerous Wild Animals Act. Last year, I heard from a friend of mine has a friend in Fife who has uh, or had reptiles under the Dangerous Wild Animals Act. And he made his friend aware that insurance companies were, for whatever reason, refusing to renew insurances for owners of uh, animals under Dangerous Wild Animals Act. He was really concerned about this because he didn't have recourse to immediately sell them on. He'd uh, said that Brexit had made exporting animals prohibitively expensive and really wasn't quite sure what to do. He said it was an issue over the whole of the UK, insurers not renewing insurance policies for DWA Act license holders. And he was really quite concerned and, and said you can probably expect 
to start seeing releases, intentional releases, or animals being dumped between now and next year. And now we see a story of a few boa constrictors turning up, seemingly dumped in Glasgow. It could be the start of the fallout from that that we're seeing. Okay, yeah, that's a very troubling story and a very troubling bit of news. And, of course, sometimes we won't see the evidence that that sort of thing might be going on, but we never get to hear about Mm it. I think we've raised it with one of our previous guests as well about the issue of just the cost in terms of heating and lighting, particularly of reptiles and amphibians and snakes. You know, it's going to be much more costly at the moment as well for people with any pets, but particularly those and and, and some, some other exotic ones. So, yeah, we could be in for troubling times on that front. So thank you for alerting us to that. We'll keep an eye on that one. Yeah, so finally, we've had this uh, poetry and limericks competition in the autumn. You responded to that, Paul, by finding this old ballad, Beast of the Bin, and very kindly getting somebody to put it to to music. And we're going to play it in a second, but you're going to introduce it. So thank you so much for doing this, Paul. It's a really classy production to finish off with. So can you tell us all about what's coming up with this rendition of Beast of the Bin, please? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I firstly have to, to thank uh, Carol Sheriffs for me finding this um, because it was from Carol's decades worth of files that she's loaned us to go through and help populate the map that this came about. This was uh, a poem that was composed by Reverend J.L. Cowie, originally of Kinross. It was published in the Press and Journal in uh, 1994. At the time, in the mid-90s, there's an area of Aberdeenshire called Huntley and there's a big hill called the Bin in Huntley and the big black cat that was seen around the area at the time became known as the Black Beast of Bin. This is B-I-N, just like that, is it? Yes. Yeah, does that mean anything in in, in local dialect? Um, now, I'm not sure, in fact, where that word originates in terms of whether it's come from a Gaelic origin or a Scots origin, I'm not sure. Um, but the Black Beast of Bin, it's, it's not a moggy raking about your wheelie bins here. This was a, a large black cat that was um, responsible for quite a number, quite a bit of livestock loss, I believe, at the time. And so I believe it was published in Hogmanay in the Press and Journal in 1994. And it's, uh, it's a great piece of work. You actually got it put to music and beautifully sung by a renowned folk singer in Scotland. Is that right? Yes, yes. Shona Donaldson is a great Scottish legend in herself. She's a great folk singer. She's from up near that area herself. And so it had mentioned that the poem was to be sung to the tune of Drumdelgi. And Drumdelgi is a, a very close by village up there. And Shona, of course, being from the northeast and having the northeast dialect, and she loves singing in it, was more than happy to oblige and uh, give us a, a full rendition of the Black Beast of Bin. That's so lovely. Please pass on our heartfelt thanks to Shona for doing that. And I think we're honoured to have such a classy finish to the show, Paul. So well done for um, providing that for us. And thanks to Carol for keeping that and letting us sort of replay it now in uh, not really an entry to our poetry competition, but something which um, embellishes the final stages of it. So people will hear it now. We'll put it in before my outro for the show. So Beast of the Bin coming up. But meantime, Paul, as we finish off, is there anything else you want to quickly touch on that we've not had a chance to chat about? Perhaps one thing we've we've also done this year is distill our national map into an exclusive links sightings map we were quite keen to know exactly how widespread distribution of sightings were and we're quite amazed in fact to find sightings of links the length and the breadth of scotland quite literally and quite a lot of close sightings with really distinctive detail determining links and from some very very credible witnesses as well so It's a map that, in fact, might even raise another question, um, a different question entirely, as to the current question of reintroduction. And it may, in fact, look towards a question of boosting a currently thriving population. I know that you occasionally have tentative chats with people who are interested in doing links reintroduction in a sort of careful, considered and responsible way. We'll see what comes out in the wash about that one. 
presumably for those people, if they wanted to point to this to, to tactically help them, they might say, well, look, you know, it's, there seems to be some credible information about links being here already and not causing problems because we're not hearing about any misbehavior of these animals, really. Mm-hmm. And yes. maybe that rather proves that we haven't got much to be concerned about. I, I don't think that's necessarily going to allay people's concerns who are really wary about links reintroduction, but it's still tactically useful, isn't it, for people who are pro-links reintroduction, the fact that any existing ones that are alleged to be here seem to be largely keeping out of trouble. Yes, exactly. You know, I I think the only opposition to date against reintroduction of links has been from farmers somehow thinking that if that happens overnight, you know, the flocks are, are going to be devastated. But if they've already been here for so long, and they're already still here, then if their flocks are not being impacted, then there's nothing to worry about in that sense. I think those people have to be treated carefully, and if there are any problems, they've got to be properly compensated. I don't think we can just say it'll be all right, you know, trust us. Yes. They've got to be partners in all of this. Yeah. Yeah, Paul, thanks so much for covering so many interesting snippets of uh, what's happening in Scotland and so pleased to hear progress on all fronts. And we'll hear from some of your contacts meantime with Paul Brooks. I think the first one coming up soon with his sightings. Thank you ever so much, Paul, for all this interesting information and coming on Big Cat Conversations. It's been an absolute pleasure once again, Rick. I know we've still got a lot more work ahead of us to do, but it's been an absolute pleasure to share something of what we've done today. Okay, Paul, and we're straight on now to Beast of the Bin. There's a puma up by Carnivus, Kent Beth far and wide, to be the great black beastie upon sweet Deverance side. The beastie, oh, on Muckleton, he is both hard and sair upon the pier of the awees, the tar is favourite fair. At six o'clock he creeps about just as the sun goes down. And he sniffs the air for he awees that he will hear it soon. For after he has sniffed a boot and found a juicy sheep, it's then he has his breakfast as ye are gone to sleep. Say shepherds guard your in good sheep and chase a wathon beast. For if ye dinna mind them, the beast will hae a feast. And there some say there are twa them, and some say there is nane. But something is gay hungry, and it leaves just skin and bane. Oh, fare ye will, ye muckle cat, or are ye just a rumour? Oh, fare ye will, ye great black beast, then gin ye no a puma. Oh, fare ye will, whate'er ye be, for we will hae your skin, and we'll shoot you again, we'll find you in Kearney or the Ben. So thanks again to Shona Donaldson for that arrangement of The Black Beast of Bin, especially for us here on Big Cat Conversations. And over coming episodes, we'll hear a few more of the poems that some of you sent in over the autumn. And we will be making a special page on the website so you can read them all there and you can then appreciate how fine and thoughtful they are. So the website Poetry Corner is coming soon. OK, there is one more incident to mention from Scotland and it's something that emerged just after the recording we did with Paul. And it's a bit of dashcam footage that has just emerged on Facebook groups. So some of you will have seen it, but we thought we'd put it on the podcast website for others to view. It was recorded in January in the West Highlands and it has kindly been released by the witness Leslie Gray because it's a rear view dash cam and it shows her response, complete with colourful language, as she drives by and suddenly notices a potential big cat out of her side window. It's best if you view it on a large screen to get a clear view of the potential cat that the camera catches. And the language is excusable because the spontaneous and emotional response to a sudden sighting is all part of what it's about. So thank you, Leslie, for sharing that one with us. 
In terms of our photos on the Big Cat Conversations website for this edition, episode 91, we must thank Derek Liddell for his pick of the potential links on a forest track. And thank you to Alex Kearney for allowing us to show his important photo of the large black cat carcass by the side of the A9 near Perth. And for our next episode, we will also have some interesting things on the website to go with the show. We'll be discussing some sightings in Somerset and in Devon. We'll be talking about public safety, if you're close up to a big cat in Britain, whether you know it or not. And we'll have two videos and an interesting photo to see on the Big Cat Conversations website. And we'll, of course, discuss those as part of the recording. OK, we're signing off now, so thanks to our guest Paul, and thank you everyone for listening. We'll be back with you soon, so take care and bye for now. Thank you.